0: Well, good morning. I never consider myself a guest when I'm asked to come here. I just kind of feel like I'm sort of coming to one of my homes. And by home, I don't mean location. I just mean the people. So it's good to see many faces again. Um, that's why I like coming here, and I love it when Ron asks me. If you have your Bible, I do want you to open it. Uh, you can do an electronic version or a paper one. It doesn't matter to me. But I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 2. Uh, starting in verse one. And I want you to stay there because I'm going to spend most of our time in Philippians two, chapter one, or Philippians two, verse one through, four, through thirteen. So turn there, and I'll give you a minute to get there, because I want you to follow along in your Bible while I'm reading in mine. It doesn't matter what version you're looking at, it'll be close enough to what I'm reading, but I want you to look at your own text as I'm reading from the Bible I'm standing up here with. Okay. Philippians chapter two starting in verse one. And we're going to go all the way to verse 13. It says, if therefore therefore, there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit and intent on one purpose. The Apostle Paul writes, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. And do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Verse 5, have this attitude, uh, the word there is actually mind. Have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Verse 7 says, But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Literally, you could almost think about this, that that Paul's saying, he he looked to us just like a man. That's what Paul's saying there. He looked to us like a man. He looked like a man. And being found in an appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now I'm going to take that whole 13 verses and I'm going to actually take a section in the middle and I'm going to do like a a close-up of that section and I'm going to pull back out to the big picture again of the whole passage and then set the context of the passage in the context of the whole book of Philippians and why Paul's even talking about this in Philippians chapter 2. But I want you to know that these 13 verses in the New Testament are like the Mount Everest of mountaintops, like, like the, the theology, the, the, the Christology, the truth about Christ, who He is, Jesus Christ, the God-man, the incarnation, what you're getting ready to celebrate with Easter, what you just came from at Christmas, why we're even sitting here today, it's all like crammed into these 13 verses. It's, it's, it, it's just thick, and, and I'm going to spend some time in the thickness of it before I pull back and make an application. Okay, so I want to kind of do this narrow close-up first. Is sort of the, the powerful part here in, in, in chapter 2, starting verse 5 again. So I want to go 5 to 8, where Paul says, Have this mind in yourself, which was also in Christ, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance as a man, it says, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death, on a cross. This, this couple verses is the clearest, best explanation anywhere in the New Testament to describe the truth that the Apostle John wrote about in John chapter 1, verse 14, where, where John said that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glories of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. We call this the incarnation, it's the in flesh, it's the act. It's the act of the pre-incarnate, pre-in-flesh Christ, God the Creator, the second person of the Trinity, the, the God who was present in Genesis chapter 1 when the heavens and the earth were created. It's that God entering into His creation. You see, it was God the Father who decreed the creation of all things, but it was God the Son who actually created it all. Speaking of the pre-incarnate Christ, John 1, 2 says this. It says, all things came into being by Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Colossians 1:16 says it this way. Talking about Jesus Christ, it says, or actually talking about Jesus before He was Jesus. It was the Christ, just the pre-incarnate Christ, saying this, by Him For Him, or by Him and for Him, all things were created both in the heavens and in the earth, visible and invisible. All things have been created by Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Jesus is the Creator in the Trinity. And this God who revealed Himself, talking about Christ, this God who revealed Himself and His existence, His power, and His glory in a general sense through His creation and through the witness of a man's conscience, that's Romans chapter 1, this God who progressively and more specifically, that's called special revelation, revealed His glory and His grace and His redemptive intent through His actions in history, through dreams, through prophets, through visions, finally becomes a man, comes to us in the form of a man. He comes to us and reveals himself to us in a form that we can comprehend. God becomes one of us, and he says, here I am. This God that your conscience speaks of, this God that your creation shouts about, you want to know who he is? You want to know what he is like? Here I am, he says. Jesus says, if you've seen me, now you've also seen the Father. So, Philippians 2, 5-8 describes what it meant for the Christ, the creator of all things, to take on human flesh, to humble himself and take on human flesh, and then become for all time, not just for 33 years, but for all time, to become Jesus Christ, the God-man. Now, I brought this with me from Nashville, and I made this because it's probably the best picture I've seen or come up with to illustrate this whole idea of what theologians call the hypostatic union or, the, or the, uh, the, the union of deity and humanity, that somehow man could be God and a God become man, and, and there's no, there's no uh, mingling of those attributes. It wasn't somehow that uh, God became man and then it became some kind of this fusion of God and man, where it was not quite God and not quite man. That would be heretical, but still fully God, fully man, but yet distinct. Now, this is amazing. <laughs> what was amazing was how I got this here. Uh, you put a lead pipe with a copper wire attached to it in a suitcase and try to check it in at the airport, you got problems. And I'll tell you, I have a real side note. So I was thinking about this before I was going to bring this, and I thought, I'm not sure how that's going to go over through my luggage. And so I put a note in my bag, and it said, I tied it to this pipe, and I said, this. I said, I'm said, i a speaker, and this is an illustration for something I'm going to go do in Hawaii. So if they opened up my suitcase, they'd see, and they wouldn't think it was like a bomb, Okay. Well, I wasn't thinking to do anything but that, and I was at the airport, and I was getting ready. I was walking away from the counter after I checked in, okay, and my bag was sitting there, and I was walking away, and I kind of, kind of an afterthought. I went back, and I told her, I said, I need to tell you something that's in my bag. I said, there's a, co- there's a lead pipe in there with a copper wire attached to it, <laughs> and she looked at me. I mean, she stopped, and she said, I need to get TSA, so she went and got TSA, And then TSA goes, I need to get my manager. So the head of TSA for the National Airport comes out and greets me, okay? And and I tell her all about it, tell her what's in my bag, and I say, you need to know, this is an illustration, there's a note in my bag, but I just, and she looked at me and she said, if you had not told us that that was in your suitcase, it would have shut down the airport. They would not have opened your bag. There would have been a bomb squad trying to open my bag. And it would have stopped everything, and they would have come found me. Wherever I was in the airport, they'd have found me. They'd have pulled me aside. I would have been interrogated. They would have stopped everything to find out about this bomb. Well, it's not a bomb, but it is a picture of the God-man. Fully God, the lead pipe. Fully man, the copper wire. Connected for all of eternity, but no less human and no less God. Now, that's really important. No less human and no less God, the eternal uniting of deity and humanity without any change in the attributes or the essence of either. Again, that's what theologians call the hypostatic union. This is how Jesus could be tempted in all things. You see, his temptation was real because he was still a copper wire. But he could not sin because he was still a lead pipe. You see that? We think sometimes because he was God that he couldn't know the temptation I go through. Well, listen, he was a man, so he did. But he was also God, so he wouldn't. Do you see that? And sometimes we look and we say, well, then his temptation wasn't real if we knew he couldn't sin. Because the Scripture does say he was tempted in all things yet without sin. And he could not sin. God was not capable of sinning. But you need to hear this. The temptation was real because Jesus was a man. But Jesus didn't succumb to the temptation because he was also still God. And not only was the reality or the realness of the temptation at least what I experienced, it was even greater. Because check this out. I'm this copper wire. When I am tempted, I easily fold like I do. It doesn't take a lot, relatively speaking, to bend me. Okay? Well, Jesus was tempted like me, but the problem was he was also the, co- the lead pipe, which means he didn't move. So, so where it doesn't take much to push me over, Jesus wasn't being pushed over, which meant the pressure of temptation against him was greater than any of us have ever faced because the pressure kept coming and he did not move, yet he still felt it like a human being, yet couldn't give in to it because he was still God. The, 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 the impact of that truth, you need to know, that it's why Hebrews says that we have a high priest in heaven. We have a God who knows what it's like to be us. Do you realize what that means? That means there's nothing that I've faced, nothing that I feel, nothing I've been tempted by, nothing I've been scared of, nothing I have grieved, nothing I've wondered about, nothing that has threatened to push me over or that has pushed me over, that Jesus Christ, my God, the Son of God that sits at the right hand of His Father, interceding on my behalf, my high priest in heaven today, that there's nothing that I've had or known that He does not know, that He does not feel, that that we don't have to wonder, God, do you know what it's like to be me? He says yes. I am you. Now, I am God, which is even better, but I'm also you, and I felt it all. I just didn't succumb to it. The temptation was real. And it was no less a temptation. Now there's multiple reasons why Jesus Christ had to be fully God and why he had to be fully man to satisfy the purpose of his coming. Reasons that I could fill this pulpit with a year talking about, but I just want to give you a couple, especially as you prepare your own hearts for Easter and you think about what this means and what happened. It's going to happen that we celebrate on the cross. First of all, Jesus Christ had to be a man for his sacrifice on the cross to be a substitution for mankind. You see, it was man for man, human for human. Jesus Christ also had to be God for that sacrifice on the cross to be sufficient for all of our sins. Because if he was just a man, well, it would only be for another man. And why it's so important that he was the lead pipe that could not sin was because he had to live a sinless life for his sacrifice on the cross to be an acceptable sacrifice. Because had Jesus been a sinner himself, he would have needed to die for his own sin and would not have been able to die for ours. So when Christ took on flesh and became the God-man... Jesus Christ now, he never became less than God, but verse 7 says, he emptied himself. And in verse 8 says, he humbled himself. The limitations of taking on human flesh <coughs> excuse me, were not that he was rendered powerless, but rather that he was willing to not act upon that power, a willingness that verse 8 says took him to death on a cross. Not because he had to die on the cross, but because, listen, he was willing to. It was what he wanted to do. The pastor says it's what was in his mind to do, which is why he did not grasp the power and the authority that was his. Allowing himself, this is amazing as well. You just grasp the enormity of this. I just described the creator God who made all of us and all that we live in, in all the heavens and the earth and anything that we see, And this God then allowed himself, the Creator allowed himself to be subject to his creation. I'm the father of six children, 27 down to 16. And I want to tell you, it's pretty hard for me to subject myself or submit myself to my own children. The Creator submitted himself to his creation. And then took on the copper wire of me for all of eternity. Jesus had it all, he was God. But verse 7 says he did not grasp it. Now pick up in verse 9. Verse 9 says, Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, that every knee, that, that the name of Jesus Christ, at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow, those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, writing from this prison cell in the book of Philippians. Paul uses this example of Christ. In fact, this whole, this whole section here about who Jesus was is actually an example Paul gives to call us to something bigger he's trying to tell us about our lives. And he says that in chapter 1, verse 2, or in fact, chapter 1, verse 27, where he says this, he says, I want you to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And then the example he gives about what that looks like is this example I just gave you about Jesus Christ. Christ becoming Jesus Christ. That's the example he gives us, is what it looks like for us to conduct ourselves like him in a manner worthy of the gospel. Paul writes in verse 27 of chapter 1, he goes, I want you to hear in the face of your suffering that you are standing, I want to hear in the face of your suffering that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Verse 29, for, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now you here to be in me. So in light of that, that's where we moved into chapter 2, starting in verse 1 where Paul says, so go back to verse 1. Here's what Paul says before talking about Jesus in, chat, in verse 5 to 8. He says this, if therefore... In light of this suffering and this conflict for the sake of Christ. If therefore there's any encouragement in Christ. He asks a question. If there's any encouragement in Christ. In the Greek is what called a first class condition. It means he's going to ask a question but there's an answer. And the answer is the affirmative. So he's going to ask a question but the answer is yes. So it's this. If there's any encouragement in Christ and yes there is. He says if there's any consolation of love. Literally the expression of agape love. If there's any consolation of love, yes there is. He says, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, the word that it's koinonia, it's literally any communal participation together with the Holy Spirit who indwells believers and indwells the church, if there's any fellowship of that Spirit, and there is, if there's any affection and compassion for one another, the word affection means bowels, heart. The underlying meaning is, is this idea of compassion and mercy, literally, If in Christ you can have a heart. If in Christ you can show mercy toward one another. If there's any affection and compassion for one another, you can, there is. If in Christ you have all of this, then verse 2 says, now, with all that being true, he says, make my joy complete. How? By being of the same mind, maintaining the same love united in spirit and intent on one purpose. This is what it looks like, he says, to conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit and intent on one purpose. Now, I have spent considerable time in places around the world, and in fact, I've even spoke about it here in this community, where I've been places around the world where Christians still risk their lives to follow Christ, And I've met with the wives of martyrs and sat in rooms with pastors who are in and out of prisons for simply doing what I am doing this morning. And they know every time they stand up to do something that I'm doing right now, they risk being carted off and hauled off and not coming back for months at a time, if not some of them for a very long time. And I typically, when I've been in these settings, I have not seen much struggling having to do with maintaining the same love, being united in spirit or being intent on one purpose. I, I don't see a lot of it, in some, of, a lot of lack of that or struggle with that in these countries with these people. When I was a church planter and a pastor of a church years back, in fact, that's where I got to know Rocky and Anadera, and that's where I actually met Ron. Ron came down to visit Rocky and Anadera when I was a pastor in Nashville, Tennessee. So I met Ron before I ever even walked into the, this building. This was years ago. I became convinced in that context, in that saying at that church, I became convinced that the impotence, the petty infighting and conflict that I witnessed in churches all over the globe, but especially in the United States, it was present in a large part because there was not, in that church, there was not a bigger, more compelling vision for the people to focus on, to rally around or be united by. And here's what happens. Without a common mission, without this common experience of grace, without this common sold-out commitment to reaching our community for Christ, it's natural. Without us being like aligned around these bigger issues, like we're all pointing the same direction, looking at the same stuff, celebrating the same grace, uniting the same purpose, like experiencing the same love for one another, without this bigger thing we've got, like that we're moving toward, we're moving with, we're focused together on accomplishing together, to experiencing together, to caring for one another as we're doing it, Without that, you know what starts to happen? Like like we start like turning toward one another. And here's what happens when we turn toward one another without this. Now, I don't mean turning toward one another in a good way. I mean we start turning toward one another. And here's what we do. We start focusing on what we do or don't like about each other. Moses said it this way. Moses said, without vision, the people run around out of control. And Paul continues here in verse verse 3. He says, he says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, mind, that's the same word about Jesus' mind, of why he did what he did, with humility of mind, let each of you, let each of us uh, regard one another as more important than himself. Now, I want you to know what I just now said, what Paul just now said, is humanly impossible. There's nothing in my DNA that will let me put your interest above my own. And let me just illustrate it, okay? When I was a teenager, and I'm old enough that 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 was a long time ago, uh, and it's important that it was a long time ago to tell you what I was taught. When I was a teenager, I took some life-saving classes so I could be like a lifeguard, okay? And back in that day, the way they taught life-saving was when someone was drowning, okay, you would swim to them, and then before you got too close, maybe from me to this second row right there, I would, I, would, I would go under. We'd practice this. I'd go under. I'd swim underneath you so that you didn't know where I was. And I would grab your feet, and I would work myself up your body, like, just like this, like grabbing you. And then when I got to your chest, I would do what's called the cross-chest carry. I'd come across your chest. I would grab these hands together, and you would be flailing against me, and I would just learn to roll with you and slowly try to drag you into shore or out of the pool, wherever you happen to be. Because what we learned to do that was we learned not to drown trying to save somebody. Because what would be true is if I just swam right up onto you, you're going to drown me and drown yourself. Now, does he want to drown me? No, he's trying not to die. And so he finds something else that looks like it might be floating And and, and in his desperation, he's going to push me under, kick me in the head, kick me in the stomach, punch me, grab me, scratch me, claw me, to try to keep himself above the water, and I'm going to die, and then he's going to (laughs) die. Everything in you wants to live, which is why you cannot put my interest above yours. You're going to push me under to stay afloat. It's in your nature to want to live, and it's in your nature to know you have needs that need to be met and you will put yours above mine naturally humanly every time because it's a matter of your own survival like so this is not humanly possible that's why it says verse 4 I love it this is so accurate do not merely look out for your own personal interest like the assumption is you're gonna it says but also add to that the interests of others add to your self-interest The same kind of interest for others. Now, where have we heard that? We are to love our neighbor as what? Ourself. The assumption is you're going to love yourself, and you love your neighbor as you already love yourself, which simply means this. I want to live, which means I want you to have some life. You with me? And Paul's acknowledging this whole thing. So we're being called to do something that, that is, quite frankly, almost impossible you see, each one of us come into this sinful world, we come into this thing, okay, we, we, are, we are fallen, we're human, we're human, but we're also fallen. We're human, but we're also fallen, okay? You know, yes, we sin, and that is what's wrong with us, and that's what's redeemed by Christ, but you need to know that being human isn't what's wrong with us. Our sin is, but the fact that we're copper wire isn't. God made us to be soft, like made us to be in need, made us to be not a lead pipe. So this isn't what's wrong with me and it's not wrong with you. It doesn't make me weak, it just makes me human. The fact that we were born with limitations and in need of God and others is how you were made not wrong, but actually it's how you were made right. You see, being a wire... Being human is what puts us in need of God and what puts us in need of each other. And I've talked about this here in this church before, but I don't teach it today in as much detail. But, you know, in the Garden of Eden, when the man and the woman remembered that they were human and in need of God and that they didn't have to be God, they had everything they wanted and everything they needed. And it was living. And the lie of the serpent was you don't need God. You can be a lead pipe just like God. And that's why they lost it all. They lost it all thinking they didn't need it. You see, when they decided that they didn't have to be human and that somehow being human was what was wrong with them, that was in the fall. And then they stopped living, they started surviving. And as long as they remembered they were in need, they got what they needed. So we're not God, thank God, but we are human. Which means God made us to be in need. Which is why, although every, which is why even when fallen and sinful, no child ever came into the world ashamed that they were not self-sufficient, ashamed that they didn't have all the answers, ashamed of their tears, or ashamed that they needed others. You see, children are hungry to live, and they will suck, they will cry out, and they will scream to have those needs met. And a child does not apologize for that. They're okay with being human until they grow up. And then they start not being okay. And they start despising their humanity and trying not to be in need, thinking that they need to become like a lead pipe and that the copperness of them is what's wrong with them. And I start believing that something's wrong with me if I need you. I think something's wrong with me if I have to ask for help. Something's wrong with me if I can't take care of myself. The point here is this if you think you are or should be a pipe, you won't cry out to have your needs met. It'll leave you to live a life of delusional, listen, delusional self sufficiency and alone as a result. You'll never experience the community of being a human being with other human beings. All of us in the need of the same lead pipe. When I can admit that I am a copper wire, it moves me to embrace you, another copper wire like me. And it moves me to embrace my own need for you and with you for the strength of that pipe. And the strength of the pipe, as we're all, as we're all kind of hanging on this together, we all kind of find that we're getting what we need. None of us are drowning. Like he's sufficient for all of us. But as long as I'm trying to be the pipe, here's the best you're going to get from me. You're going to get resentment that you appear appear to be more than who I'm trying to be or wish I was or who I don't want to admit that I'm not. Or you'll get this. You'll get pity from me that you're weak and you're not more like me. The pipe that I fancy myself to be. Another way of saying this is this. It is the hatred of my own neediness that's my weakness in my humanity that is the root of my hatred for your neediness, your weakness, and your humanity, and my intolerance of it in you. I hear people say this all the time. I'm harder on myself than anyone else. You need to know that's impossible. It's impossible. Until you start admitting your own humanness and your own neediness, you'll never be able to accept and receive the humanity and the neediness of those around you. If you're judging yourself, you are judging everyone around you. Either you're pitying them because they're not as strong as you, or you're resenting them because they appear to be more of a pipe than you are. What's also true is that my fear, my fear that I that I must meet my own needs, if, if I have to, if I can't be a human, I have to meet my I, I have to, if I if I'm a human being's okay with being in need. If I can't be human, then all of a sudden, now I'm, trying, I'm going to have to meet my own needs. And it's my fear of not having my needs met that will keep me from putting your interest above my own. You see, if I, think, if I think that there's just this much pie, and I'm going to die without that, this much pie, I sure don't want you to have a piece of it. Because if you have a piece of it, I'm not going to have enough. And if I'm responsible for meeting my own needs and this is the piece of pie I have, I'm not giving you any of the pie I have because I'm responsible for making sure I'm okay and this is what I have. You're not getting any. But if you're copper and I'm copper and we're all relying upon the pipe to meet our needs, then all of a sudden this is limitless. It's unlimited. And it's a lot easier to share with you what I have and to give you what I have because together we're both getting what we need. And there's an endless supply of it. And I'm not talking about giving my stuff. That's the easy part. I'm talking about something that's more threatening and something that's more vulnerable. I'm talking about me asking for forgiveness because I need to ask for forgiveness. I'm talking about me not having to defend myself, not having to be right all the time, not having to be understood about everything. Uh, It's me embracing the limitations of my humanity the same way Jesus Christ embraced his. Listen, he didn't grasp the fact that he was a lead pipe. It says he let go of it and became a human and humbled himself and took on the limitations of humanity. He willingly took on the limitations of humanity and he's kept them for all eternity and yet we resist the limitations of our humanity and we're trying to be a God that we're not and then we miss out on the provision of a God who is and then how we even need each other and how God uses that to help us meet our needs. Because the more I grow conscious of my copper wireness, I develop a conscience I develop a conscience for what it must be like to be you, because you're me. Like, it, it, you, this is me. And, you know, it's you. And so I kind of know what it might be like to be you, because I am you. Because I'm limited like you are, and, 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 and I'm human like you are, and I'm in great need like you are. And I don't have all the answers like you do. And I'm not self-sufficient. None of us are. So I develop a conscience. That conscience becomes empathy. See, I know what it could be like to be you, and I'm not judging you for any of that, which then turns into humility, which is what this passage is talking about, where I have needs and you have needs, and I'm confident enough that God will meet my needs because He has met them already, and that I can let go of what I have and help be part of the, the solution of the needs that you're having met. And all of this, in verse 12, says is how we work out our salvation. That's how you work out your salvation. It's how you mature and grow and change. It's how you're transformed individually and corporately into the image of Jesus Christ. And unless we think this is something we have to do for ourselves, you walk out of here and go, man, that's a heavy weight. He just told me we have to go do what's humanly impossible to do. But, you know, Paul says this in verse 13. It's his work in us. God's work in us. He says, verse 13, For it is God who is at work in you. Both to will and to work for His good pleasure. God's the one doing this in me, and He's the one doing it in you. And I'm telling you, you think this is what you have to be, and life will teach you this is who you are. And as life teaches you this is who you are, you'll actually get to experience who you are with Him and with us. It's a, it's 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 the honestly. Sometimes my brain wants to explode of what that means. And how strongly I resist it. Surrender to your humanity. Let God be God and you just be human. Surrender to your neediness. To be in need is inherent to what it means to be human. And surrender to the power you think you have. Jesus had it all and he let go of it and then in the letting go of it, he got it all. You see, walking in humility, laying down our own rights, being weakness, to power. It's not something you just go do. It's actually something you experience as you walk with God. It's something you must learn to trust over time. I shared this story. I'll share it quickly here. I won't share the whole story. I shared it here years ago, but I share it because it's the first time. I've been a follower of Christ for 37 years. I think it's the first time I ever really experienced what I'm talking about this morning. And it was a time in my life when I I had committed some significant failure that had hurt many people around me, especially the people that I worked with and a flock that I had shepherded and a church that I would started. And, and I, I, I went on a, about a two- or three-week period where I made appointments with about 25 different people. Like, it was like a full-time job for a couple of weeks. Like, I was setting up appointments with people I worked with. And here was, here's what I was, I was making amends to them. And here's what I was doing. It was like I'd go to you and I was saying, look, I'd like to meet with you at 2 o'clock tomorrow if you're free, and here's what I'm going to do. I want to meet with you. And then we'd sit down. And I said, look, when we're done talking, I'm going to ask you forgiveness for how I've hurt you. But before I ask for that, I want you to tell me what it's like and been like for you to live with me and to work with me. And I want you to tell me how I've hurt you. Because when I ask you for forgiveness, I want you to know that I know how hard it's going to be for you to grant it. And I want you to know that I know what it is you're granting me forgiveness for. So I I want you to lay it on and let me hear it and then let me respond. And some of those were beautiful. Some of those were short. Some of those were, hey, it happened fast. But there was one, there was one that, that I sat down like this with a man and it went about three hours. And I'm telling you, as he started to roll, like it's just stuff started coming, right? I started realizing, because I'm not an idiot, I started realizing that some of the stuff that he was sharing, it was it wasn't all me. Like it ended up being like I was going, man, that that was He was like, it was like, I would just, I opened the door and it's like the waterfall just poured out of this guy. And so he was bringing me all his hurts and resentments for almost his whole stinking life. And you can hear my voice. I'm saying like, it was almost his whole life. And I was sitting there and I started to find myself wanting to defend myself. Like, wait a minute, that, that, you're not talking about me there. Or, you know, that wasn't quite as bad as what you're describing. You know, I did that, but I didn't do that. Like, I I felt that in me wanting to defend myself. And, And listen, he just kept coming with it. And here's what God did. And and I mean, this was real to me. Literally, right behind his head, I saw a small cross. And it was about that big, just behind his head. And the cross spoke to me. And I've only had a couple moments like this in my whole life, but this was one of them. The cross spoke to me. I don't know if it's audible or I I don't care how it came to me, but the cross said this, my grace is sufficient for you. And everything that happened in this cross Forgave everything that this man's saying to you. And the more this man brought me, my sin against him, others' sin against him, like the cross, physically in my mind's eye, kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Like it kept growing. The more he said, the bigger it got. I started weeping. And it wasn't over him, I had already wept my tears over how I'd hurt this man. It was I was weeping over the sufficiency of the gospel, the cross, for my sin. And I found myself, my whole chest, I just kind of settled down. And, and, I, and I found myself saying, tell me more. <laughs> like, is there anything else? What else do I need to own? Because the more I owned and the more, he said, the bigger the cross got. And by the time we were done, it was like this ginormous, like, cross behind this man, I didn't even see the man anymore. And I thought, so this is what it looks like to experience Christ, to experience His grace and His mercy in my life. And I tell you, there's nothing that I have practiced more in the last 12 years since that day than this thought, and it's the thought that has gone in my head more than any other biblical thought, that if I defend myself, I lose my defender. If I defend myself, I lose my defender. And God will do more to defend His reputation in my life while I'm sleeping than I can do the rest of my life every waking day of my life, because God gives grace to the humble and He opposes the proud. I have said that self to myself a bazillion times, and even just as current as last week, your text messaging is awful. It's awful in relationships. And something happened with a family member. There's some tension around a brother of mine that's very sick, and I was dealing with one of my other siblings about it, and something flashed on a text, and it got kind of ugly really fast. And this sibling of mine who ha- we have a tough relationship, all of a sudden, it was like, boom, and it was like, I'm not, you know, my, the one sibling, well, I'm done with you. And it was like that kind of, you know how that stuff just happens fast. All of a sudden, no one's talking to anybody. And I was going, oh, my gosh, here we are. Like, total, total, like, man, have I completely lost my relationship with this sibling over this? It was awful. And I just went right back to this thought, this idea that I'm talking about today, and this experience of Christ when I'm willing to humble myself and put the interests of someone else above my own. And it took me about 15 minutes, and actually it was prompted just about this time. I got an email from Ron that said he was preaching on Friday night this idea of forgiveness. And I was pissed when I got that email because I went to the passage and saw what it was, and it had to do with forgiving your enemies, And what good does it do for you to forgive someone who's your friend? And I'm going, because I was wanting to hold this thing with this sibling of mine. And then I went back to here and I went, I can't do this. And I don't want to do this. And I want to experience Christ. And so I I got on that text thing and I went to the sibling and I said, and by the way, I'm not going to say he or she. They were 90% at fault on this one. I'm just telling you they were. It didn't matter. It didn't matter. Here's what I did. I owned the whole stinking thing. And I got on a text message, I said, will you forgive me? I know that my words were hurtful. I am so sorry. And it would have been beautiful if that sibling could have written back and said, me too, I did. But you know what? Man, I got hammered. You know, like, yeah, you're right. Ba ba ba. And it just got hard. And I went, you know, it didn't matter. You know, it didn't matter because, because I was the one that got all, I mean, it was just incredible. And I went, you know what? I got what I needed. And it wasn't from the sibling, it was from Jesus. I'll tell you why I wanted to teach this passage. I know you're in a series, and I kind of side-taught it, you know, by accident, a little bit there. But I wanted to choose Philippians 2 because um, I love coming to this church. But one of the reasons why I love coming to the church is because I love Ron. And when I heard that he was fighting cancer, it hit me like a ton of bricks. Because if you know him, here's what you know. I I have known very few people that embody, and he's not perfect. Ask his kids and ask his wife. But I know very few people that I have ever known in Christ who I see as much of this passage in that i taught from today. And from the day I met him, I've always been overwhelmed that he just always seemed to put my interest above his own. There's a humility about him that I could not comprehend and it's like it hadn't gone away, it just keeps growing. And this man has shown me mercy in times of my life when people, some didn't. And he just had, he's just been relentless that way. And I love coming here because I, I love what I experienced with him, but also I get it from you. I want you it's very personal to me. And I thought, what else do I want to teach on, but what it not only looks like to experience Christ this way, but also to see someone live that way, and how attractive it is. And I want to teach on it just awesome just to say thank you, Ron, for being that example, not just to this flock, but that's what you've been to me. And I want to pray for you, and I'll pray for this church, and I want to pray for your family. And uh, for those of you who might not know, you know, Ron's struggling with a very serious form of cancer, and yet he's even doing that with grace. And you get to see it, and you're seeing God's grace be sufficient for him in the midst of this. So, Lord, I pray for this church. And I pray this church will be a place, Lord, united with one purpose, on one the same intent, with the same mind, experience the same grace. Lord God, thank you for the example of this pastor that has loved here and loves well in this body, that has been an example of this kind of humility that puts the interests of others over his own. Lord, everyone in this church that knows him and knows this place knows that to be true. So I pray, Lord, in these days of his great need, Lord, would you use this family to flood him? just a copper wire, would you flood him with grace and mercy and help and love and support. I pray that for him, and I pray that for Rocky and Anna Dara. I pray that for Dee. I pray that for grandchildren. Lord, I pray that your mercy would wash through this church, and this would be a place that everyone in here would just know that you are, your spirit is at work, that we are all just copper wires, Lord, just thanking God that we don't have to be the lead pipe and thanking God that you are. And that our strength and our endurance and our, our life and our sustenance and our needs get met by you, but even through us together. And I pray and I thank you this morning for what you're doing here. And I thank God for you this morning, Lord, for the friendship, the life, the example, and the ministry that Ron is in my life. In Jesus' name, amen. So now that I did that, I also need to apologize. I know I blew up your schedule. Um, I know I did. All right. So if I can do that. All right. You need to forgive me for that too, Ron. All (laughs) right.